Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. We're going to continue in our series as Pastor Jonathan was teaching on Palm Sunday. Jesus couldn't have grown up in a more insignificant place than Nazareth or in a more insignificant family. You see, they were incredibly ordinary people. And if it wasn't enough hardship growing up in an ordinary insignificant place. Right from the start, there was a guy named Herod the Great who wanted him dead. We're going to be referencing two Herods today. I want to explain them to you so you get them kind of solidified in your head. The first Herod is Herod the Great. It's the Herod that Pastor Jonathan was talking about on Palm Sunday. This is the Herod that wanted to kill all the Jewish boys when Jesus was an infant. There's also Herod Antipas, and he is actually Herod the Great's son. And so when Herod the Great has done his leadership, Herod Antipas is the one that takes on the kingship duties. And he's actually the Herod that's in control when Jesus dies on the cross. So to start, let's remember about Herod the Great. He was from this great line, this great important family. He was impressive. He got a lot of things done. But he would also hurt anyone in the process to getting what he wanted accomplished. See, Herod abused his power and always the end justified the means for Herod the Great. Uh, Herod and his whole family were in control of the region when Jesus was alive, the whole time that he was alive, and their main order was actually to make sure that the crown stayed on their heads. And the best way to do this in their minds was to keep everyone controlled. Here's the problem. There were a ton of people living in the Roman world. And if you've ever tried to control anything, it's difficult. But on top of that, there were also a ton of Jewish people that lived in Jerusalem that was part of the Roman world. And so wanting to keep everyone under control in around 18 to 20 BC, Herod announces that he is going to rebuild the temple that has been destroyed for the Jewish people. He goes on to make this elaborate speech declaring that he's going to rebuild the temple and this is what he says. I think that I have, by the will of God, brought the Jewish nation to such a state of prosperity as it has never known before. You see, to the crowds gathered on that day, it would have sounded as if Herod was building the temple for the Jewish people. But in reality, Herod was building the temple to impress the Jews that he could control them. See, he needs to bring them in closer alignment with Rome so that he can make them compliant and more dependent on Rome. Have you ever received a gift that felt like it had some strings attached to it? That's exactly what is happening here. The temple would have been presented like a gift. It would have looked like a gift, but in reality, it was a message. Herod was saying, you owe me, or maybe even worse, I own you you. And then he does one more thing to secure his control of the Jewish people. He gives control of this impressive, massive temple to their religious leader, the high priest. 
Now, let me tell you about the priest. The priesthood began back in the Old Testament. God had appointed a guy named Aaron to help a guy named Moses lead God's people out of Egypt and out of slavery. See, the, the gift of priesthood that started with Aaron was always meant to be a gift to God's people. And uh, priests would allow people to have relationship with God. Their role was actually to stand between God and humanity. And they did this because they lived such disciplined, holy lives that God could speak to them. And then they could speak to God's people. Then God's people could speak to the priest and the priest could go to God. So it allowed God to have relationship with his people. And they were able to do this because God gave pages and pages of instructions on how these priests were how to act, how they were, what they were to wear, um, told all about the laws, how they were to offer sacrifices, what kind of sacrifices to make, how to build the altars, how to altars, how to care for the people, pages and pages of instructions on how to be priests and honor God. In Jeremiah 33, it says this, for this is what God has said, there will always that's important, be priests on hand to offer burnt offerings, to present grain offerings, and carry on the sacrificial worship in my honor. You see, the position of priest carried a great responsibility and a great care for God's people. It was meant to be a gift. But here's the problem. Even though it was meant to be a gift, we quickly see that the, the priesthood starts to disintegrate over time. It starts to break down a little bit. And eventually, it ends up becoming this attractive, prominent, powerful position that could actually be purchased. Because it became so difficult that in 174 BC, the role of high priest goes up for auction and it goes to the highest bidder. Then sometime around 150 BC, something monumental happens because God had set up the priesthood so that there would always be a leader and there would always be a priest over his people. This was beautifully designed so that there would be accountability, so that the priest could go to the leader, give caution, give challenge, so that God could work within his people. But what happens in 150 BC is leaders start appointing themselves as high priests as well. They hold dual jobs. And some of the Jewish people, they get very upset. There's this guy, his name's King John. He's the third leader to choose to do this. And his people are so upset and they start calling him corrupt. He belongs to one of the groups of, of Judaism that is actually called the Pharisees. And what happens is the Pharisees are so upset that King John has done this that he decides to join a different Jewish sect and he goes over and joins the Sadducees. Let me tell you a little bit about these different sects, if you're getting a little bit confused. Um, around 300 BC is where we start to see these groups develop. Think of it as a big family. Israel's a big family, but there's little groups that develop within that big family. And if, if you have families, you might understand this. Sometimes they don't get along. First, we have the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees, important to know, they ran King Herod's temple. And they were priests that came from the Sadducees line. So the high priest was always chosen from the Sadducee line. We're going to go back to them. Let me look at the Essenes. Now the Essenes, they are an interesting group of people. They believed that every other group was corrupt, but especially the Sadducees. They believed that the Sadducees were so corrupt that they had corrupted the temple, they had corrupted the festivals, they had corrupted the sacrifices, everything was corrupt. And what they did was actually the Essenes refused to even enter the temple. They just thought it was so corrupt. Instead, what they did was they retreated to the wild and they built their own community that they would say was uncontaminated by power and by the temple. 
And there they practiced an isolated life, a life that was marked by self-discipline and a lack of self-indulgence. And they waited for the coming Messiah. There they followed very strict rules, crazy rules like you couldn't spit, you couldn't interrupt anybody, and then all of the other rules that you can think of. See, the Essenes, they wanted nothing to do with power. They didn't want to have it, and they certainly didn't want to be controlled by it. Next, we have the Zealots. Now, these guys, they kind of felt the way that King Herod felt. If you wanted to have power, then you need to go and take it for yourselves. These guys dominated everybody else. Their arms were constantly raised in violence. Their voices were constantly raised. They were always involved in the riots. They were always causing problems in the streets. They would use their voices and they would use their fists to fight against the evil Roman Empire. In fact, they thought that Israel should only be governed by the Jews. Third, we have the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are rule followers. They are what they like to call Torah experts. The Torah is simply God's laws that he had given to his people. So they're experts in the Torah. They religiously followed every single law, and their hope was to make sure that everyone else was following the laws. Their mission was to call every but Jew back to the Torah if they could only get everyone obedient enough, then maybe the Messiah would come back. Now, in regards to the temple, the Pharisees did not oppose participation in the temple. They actually participated in the temple. They served in the temple, but they did oppose the Sadducees and had a lot of problems with them. Now, the Pharisees did not like the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not like the Pharisees, but they worked together to keep the temple open. The Pharisees did it because they wanted to follow the law. The Sadducees did it because there was great gain in store for them. Now, let me tell you about the Sadducees. They're affluent. They're an aristocratic group. They gravitate towards people who have influence. They were known to be important people of society, but there was a reason. They were easily bought. See, the Sadducees, they loved the thought of power, and they found it through the temple. Now, in Rome, there were three what I'd call VIPs in society, the people whose importance rose above everyone else. First, we had Herod. Now, Herod was in charge of everyone. Remember, we had Herod the Great, and we have Herod Antipas. We're talking about Herod Antipas now when Jesus is alive. Um, and then we have Pilate, who was the Roman governor. He was appointed and answered to King Herod. And then finally, we had the high priest. This was appointed by the Roman governor. And like I said, he was in control of the temple. But as a requirement of that, he was tasked with the responsibility of leading the Jewish people and keeping them under control. And he was from the Sadducee line, which this is an important, interesting combo because we have the high priest, which is a role that God has ordained. And now we have the high priest, which is a position that comes with power that is gifted by Rome. And in Jesus's time, that top job was given to a guy named Caiaphas. He became high priest in AD 18. So now we have a new Herod, Herod Antipas, he comes into rule at 4 AD, and we have high priest Caiaphas, and they are important individuals. Now, let me tell you about Caiaphas. Out of the 28 high priests that served under Herod Antipas, which was about, his reign was about 33 years, Caiaphas held that role for 18 of those years. He was well-liked by, by uh, Herod and also by Pilate. 
And as a favored high priest, Caiaphas got to enjoy a very luxurious, privileged, lavish life. They tell us that his home was probably two to three stories in height. He probably had mosaic tile all throughout his, his house. He probably had multiple water features like ponds and pools and baths that went throughout his house. He enjoyed the finer things of life and he could afford them because of his tenure as the high priest. He lived amongst Jerusalem's most wealthy individuals. And as high priest, Caiaphas had three main jobs that he was supposed to do. The first was given to him by God and it was to oversee the sacrifices and the festivals. Now, as the appointed representative of God between him and his people, this should have been Caiaphas's main job. But this is where we start to see power get to Caiaphas's heart and his head a little bit. Because the Sadducees and Caiaphas soon discover there's a monopoly of money to be made through the temple. See, people are required under Jewish law to come to the temple multiple times a year to offer sacrifices so that they can atone for their sins. And a few things have to happen in order for that to be accomplished. First, people need to get to the temple. They need to enter the temple. And there's a Jewish law that you can't enter the temple if you're not clean. And so there's baths that have been set outside the temple courts so that people can bathe. Well, Caiaphas, he's like, ah, he sets up a payment plan. So a payment system so that you have to pay to go into the bath so that you can come into the temple. Secondly, there needs to be unblemished, perfect animals available for the sacrifices of the temple. Caiaphas and his people tune into this. What they do is they set up preferred vendors within the temple that people who have traveled long distances can purchase an animal from them to be available for sacrifice. And of course, to these vendors, there's a commission that Caiaphas lines and puts in his pocket. Third interesting thing is the temple is operated by different currency than the people would have had when they came to the temple. So Caiaphas tunes into this and he sets up some currency booths where they can exchange their money for what we'll call sanctuary shekels. And they can do this little currency exchange so that they can purchase things within the temple. But Caiaphas puts on a little bit of a fee so that that can come back to him as well. And if that isn't enough, finally, after God's people have exchanged their currency for those temple dollars, after they've paid for a ceremonial cleansing to come into the temple, after they've purchased an animal sacrifice so that they can atone for their sins, Caiaphas then charges them a fee for performing the sacrifices that will atone for their sins, which I'll remind you is his job and commissioned to him by God. The second thing that Caiaphas is supposed to do is he's supposed to lead the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is a group of 71 men. They're made up of Sadducees and of Pharisees. And they meet in a special room that has been designed when the temple was built. There was a special room. It's called the Sanhedrin Court. And it's there that they preside over cases of the Jews. They would bring them the cases and they would make decisions on what needed to happen. The only thing that they couldn't make a decision on is the death penalty. Because the death penalty had to be given by Rome. Everything else that they could do. And so the Sanhedrin court was led by the high priest Caiaphas. And as was read today, they were actually the group who arrested Jesus and put him on trial in the middle of the night. The third rule that Caiaphas, the high priest, was to do, we learn this, is to keep control of the Jewish people. 
And this is where we things, see things start to unravel in Caiaphas's life. Remember, Rome appointed the high priest over the Jewish people so that they would not have to deal with them. But over the last three years, there's been this guy named Jesus, and he's traveling around, and he's creating chaos through his teachings. He's declaring crazy, unheard things like the kingdom of God is for everyone, not just the elite. He's performing miracles in these simple homes and towns, not just in the temple where they could make money off of them. And now Jesus has come to Jerusalem, and he's been welcomed by thousands of people who are declaring that he is a king on Palm Sunday. The problem here is that Caiaphas is supposed to be the most important religious prominent leader in Jerusalem. But these crowds are beginning to follow this guy named Jesus. And then Jesus does something that I really think kind of seals his fate with Caiaphas. See, at this time, there's about 2.5 million Jews in Jerusalem, and they're getting ready to celebrate the Passover together. That's why they're there. This is already a really problematic time for Caiaphas. The sheer numbers in the city already has him on edge. It has Rome on edge. A riot could break out at any time. And because his job is to keep peace, and he's praised and given the opportunity to stay in his role if he's able to do that. See, priests who can't keep control of the Jews, well, they were quickly dethroned of their power. All opportunity and privilege were taken away from them. So no wonder that Caiaphas is a bit nervous about what Jesus does next, because after Palm Sunday, Jesus heads to the temple. And when he arrives in the temple, the Bible tells us that Jesus begins overturning the tables that Caiaphas had set up to monopolize on the people. Jesus turns over the money changers, he turns over the animal vendors, he changes over all the tables that are collecting fees for those ritual cleansing baths. When Jesus does this, he is making a bold statement to Caiaphas and all of Jerusalem that what God thinks about their misuse of the temple and their misuse of the power that God has given to them. Jesus says this, my temple was supposed to help my people, but you have turned it into a place that robs them. So things are precarious. The city is buzzing. The people are buzzing. There's excitement in the air. Those Jewish sects are already at odds with each other. The Pharisees don't like the Sadducees. The Sadducees don't like the Essenes. It's crazy. Caiaphas is facing unreal pressure from Rome to keep everyone subdued and in control, even as the threats of riots and crowds and excitement builds. And now Jesus, the person who's at the middle of all the problems, is in the temple overturning the tables. The problem is Caiaphas can't deal with Jesus at the temple. If he does, a riot will certainly ensue with Jesus' followers and those who are opposed to him. So Caiaphas comes up with a plan. The Bible tells us that Caiaphas has Jesus arrested in the middle of the night. Then he gathers the Sanhedrin and he brings them into his own house where they have put Jesus on trial and they find him guilty. Once they've declared that Jesus is guilty, then Caiaphas can bring Jesus to Pilate and he can convince Pilate that Jesus deserves the death penalty, which leads to Caiaphas' ultimate solution, kill Jesus and restore the peace. And so he does it. Because he holds so much authority and so much power, Caiaphas is able to complete his plan almost to perfection. Here's the issue. 
He cuts a lot of corners as he does it. He goes a lot against a lot of God's instructions as he goes about doing it. See, there were specific trial laws that the Sanhedrin were supposed to follow. And these were then. The first is trials must take place during the day. They knew this. But Jesus' trial happened at at night in secret so that no one else would know about it. Another one, trials were not to happen on a feast or festival day. Well, Jesus' trial happened during Passover, the biggest feast and festival that they had. The third thing, trials must be conducted in the Sanhedrin court. But Jesus' trial happened in secret at Caiaphas' house. See, Caiaphas went over and over to make sure he got what he wanted. And he's such a sober example for us on what the misuse of power can do. Because his calling was to care for God's people, but instead he was controlling and manipulating them for his own personal needs. In Caiaphas, we see a misuse of power, and this is the definition of it. The use of power to manipulate or control people in order to take unfair advantage of them to accomplish a desired outcome. See, abuse of power, like we saw in King Herod's life, is often loud. It's ugly. We can see it. But misuse of power, like we see in Caiaphas's life, of somebody who is entrusted to care for someone else, is often silent and deadly. Because in 33 AD, Caiaphas succeeds in having Jesus killed on the cross. I wonder, what can we learn from Caiaphas's life? The first, I think, is this. The allure of position and privilege will tempt you to misuse your power. We want to watch out for these types of opportunities. There is nothing wrong with power and position. That's how God accomplishes things in the world. That's how laws that need to be changed are changed. That's how people raise their voices for people who are oppressed so that they can experience freedom. There's good things that come when God gives out power. But we need to be very careful when these things are happening because we will be tempted to misuse them which is why we put boundaries around areas where we have power. Because a lack of boundaries will turn compromise into corruption. Again, there's nothing wrong with compromise. Compromising for someone or something that you love can be a beautiful thing. But it becomes destructive when there are no boundaries around our morals and our values. The truth is that Caiaphas had very specific instructions from God on how he was to act as high priest and how he was to care for God's people. He just chose to ignore them. See, Caiaphas worked in a God-ordained temple role, pretending there was no God in the temple. And I wonder, what about us? How often do we live in a world created by God, pretending that there is no God of this world? The truth is that there's a little Caiaphas in each of us. Sometimes it's unintentional. At first, I think Caiaphas and the Sadducees may have not realized what they were doing, what boundaries they were crossing. Maybe they didn't notice the money that was lining their pockets as they were going about running the temple. The truth is that sometimes the lines that we cross, those little lines, aren't noticeable until we have gone too far. But sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes we choose to use people to get ahead in life. We're willing to manipulate or push the boundaries at work, at home, in our relationships, in our thoughts, so that we can get ahead in life, so that we can come out on top. And it's dangerous territory when humanity acts in this way. 
See, religion has a bad track record for this, sometimes manipulating others to gain a desired outcome. Perhaps one of the most difficult examples I can think of this is how religion has attempted to colonize people groups in the name of God. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, he's affectionately known as South Africa's moral conscience, once said this, when missionaries came to Africa, they had the Bible and we had the land. They said, let us pray. We closed our eyes. When we opened them, we had the Bible, but they had the land. I want you to take a moment and think about yourself, that Caiaphas inside of you. I think in this statement, all of us can see ourselves in both capacities. But you know there's a way to protect ourselves from manipulating and misusing the power that's entrusted to us. And it's the order to your relationship matters. See, if only Caiaphas had put God before Rome, everything else would have lined up in his life. But instead, Caiaphas chose Rome over God, chose to serve Rome over God. And what happened was the temple that was supposed to be a space that honored God ended up just becoming a commodity that he could gain from. See, Rome became Caiaphas's provider, his protector, and his future. We all have competing relationships in our lives, things that demand our time and attention, things that tempt us with the allure of position, power, privilege. We've all chosen Caiaphas's way. And that night when Caiaphas held that secret trial during Passover, he was misusing his power to get what he wanted. And on that night as Jesus stood trial in Caiaphas's home in front of the Sanhedrin, we read that Caiaphas says to Jesus, Jesus, Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus replies, you have said so. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then we read that Caiaphas tore his clothes and said, Jesus has spoken blasphemy. I wonder, why did this statement anger Caiaphas so much? Well, it's because it's an Old Testament prophecy that Jesus was quoting from Daniel. And it says, there was the Son of Man coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, who is God, and was led into his presence. The Son of Man was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every age worshipped him. His dominion is everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. You see, Jesus was declaring that he was a sovereign, a king, not just of Jerusalem, not just of Rome, but of the universe. And that trumped the power that Caiaphas thought that he held in his hands. See, Jesus, Jesus was announcing that Caiaphas's shakable kingdom would soon be destroyed, but the kingdom that Jesus was building would be internal and unshakable. And through the way that Jesus chose to live, Jesus was showing Caiaphas and the world another way to use his power. And he did it by dismantling and decentralizing power, by taking it out of the temple courts and giving it to the people, by using power to bless and not take away. Friends, Jesus already had everything. He had wealth, privilege, power, position. He gave it all up when he came to this earth in human form. 
The truth is that Caiaphas might have thought he was all-powerful when he secured Jesus' death on a cross. But in reality, he had no power at all. He was simply chained to the Romans and required to serve them. And Jesus, who seemingly had no power at all as he died on the cross, actually held all the power in the whole world because he chose to come. He willingly stepped down from heaven, choosing to come to this earth and die on a criminal's cross for you and for me. And maybe today you just want to, you would want to respond to that simple truth. That Jesus, the King of heaven, came to this world to willingly die on a cross for you and me because he loves us and he wants relationship with us, just as he wanted to be in relationship with humanity for all of time. And if that's you today, if you want to respond to King Jesus who loved you so much that he chose to die on a cross for you, if you're ready to start a relationship with him, then I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. But I also want to pray for two groups of people. First, maybe you're sitting here today and you have been on the receiving end of the misuse of power. Maybe you've experienced the pain of someone who was supposed to care for you and guide you and lead you, and instead they manipulated you and they controlled you. Unfortunately, over my years of ministry, I've often seen that this misuse of power often shows up in families of origin. It can present as a guilt trip or narcissist behavior, people who carry these inflated egos and who lack boundaries or maybe empathy. See, when a power imbalance like misuse of power comes from a position of trust, it can be hard to identify, hard to put our finger on it. It also can be incredibly destructive and incredibly hurtful. And friends, I want you to know that this was not God's plan for your life. Power was a gift that God gave. It's not a weapon to be yielded. And so if that's you, if you'd say, you know what, Pastor Jessica, someone who is supposed to care for me actually hurt me, took their power and hurt me. And I need God to come in and heal some of that brokenness that's inside of me. Then I'm going to pray for you. Because I know that God can do that. He can take what men meant for harm and he can come in and help us move on and move forward. And then finally, and this might be the most difficult one, I want to pray for those of us who would admit to identifying with Caiaphas. Whether intentionally or maybe unintentionally, we have all misused power that has been entrusted to us. And as ugly as that admission can be, it's also incredibly beautiful to admit that we're just mere humans that are in need of a savior. We're broken people in need of a king who can show us a better way to live. And he can use his power to help heal and change us make us more like him. And if that's you, if you'd say, you know what, I've manipulated people. I've manipulated situations to get what I want at times. I'm going to pray for you as well. So let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you came to this world and you acted like nobody else from this world, God. You were a good king who served his people. And you saved the world through, the death, for through your death on the cross. God, thank you for standing in the gap between us and in between you so that we can now enjoy relationship with you. 
God, I think of my friends who are ready to start a relationship with you. God, we admit we are not perfect people, but you are a perfect king. So God, thank you for dying on a cross, for making a way for me and my friends to have a relationship with you. Help us to grow to know you more, God. Help us to learn to follow you so that we can follow you all the days of our life and, and follow your example. And God, I want to pray for my friends who have been on the hurtful side of the misuse of power, who have felt the pain of power that was yielded to manipulate and control. Father, I know you can heal those broken places that have been caused by people who should have cared for us and protected us. God, I thank you that you are a king that helps and heals his people, drawing them close to you. And so God, we ask that you would do that. And then finally, God, I want to pray for those who would admit that we have yielded the power that you have given to us like a weapon instead of a gift. God, would you forgive us for the ways that we have manipulated situations and people to benefit ourselves? Would you help us to put up boundaries, God? Would you help us to follow your example so that we could learn to bless people with the power that you have entrusted us? God, would you help us to lift our voices lift our influences so that others might benefit and be protected and granted freedom from the gift of your power. Thank you, King Jesus, for the work on the cross that you did for us and the work that you are doing inside each of us. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time. Thank you.